just to reiterate for another time, it is Mark 1 from verse 14 to 28. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God. Thanks, Martha. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you this morning, we are, we are inundated by media, by messages, by voices, many of them in our own heads. And Lord, we pray that you will clear our minds that we may hear the voice of God as we read the word of God and as the spirit of God applies the word of God to our hearts. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit. Without your spirit, we are blind, we are deaf, and we need the spirit of God to clear away all the clutter, all the interruptions, all the concerns, that we may hear your voice and be drawn closer to you. Speak to us, we implore you, through your word and by your spirit. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as you know, we are spending eight, nine weeks in the Gospel of Mark. It's a series, and I've called it The Scandal of Jesus. 
Last week, we looked at chapter 1, verse 1 to 13. It was somewhat introductory, uh, quite critical to understand uh, some of the key issues. So if you missed last week, you can pick it up on our website, perhaps at a later stage. Do remember, remember chapter 1, verse 1 uh, is really the title of the book. We looked at this last week. The beginning of the gospel, which means good news, of Jesus Christ. Christ is the is the Greek word for Messiah, of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And you remember last week we heard three voices. We heard the voice of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. We heard the voice of God the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And we saw the voice of Satan, the adversary, the tempting Jesus. Today, for the first time, we will hear the voice of Jesus. And he gives us almost a summary of the gospel, the Christian faith, in verse 14 and 15. Now, we're going to unpack our passage, chapter 1, verse 14 through to verse 28, under three headings, the, the announcement, the authority, and then lastly, we look at the conflict. But let me just go down one side road, which goes back to the question, who is Mark? Now, we saw last week that Mark, also called John Mark, was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. In fact, he was a scribe for the Apostle Peter. He was writing down, he was transcribing the eyewitness reports of Peter, who, of course, was one of the closest disciples of Jesus. So Mark's gospel is almost the memoirs of the Apostle Peter. But who is Mark? So let's turn to the book of Acts and get to know John Mark, the author of this book, and you're going to be very surprised to find out who he is. Remember, after you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you ask the question, what happened then? Well, the answer is found in the book of Acts. So Acts, the book of Acts, is a history of the early church after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. It's Church History 101. So let's have a look at Mark chapter, not Mark, Acts chapter 12. Turn to Acts chapter 12, and we'll do a short Bible study in this man called John Mark. So let's pick it up, chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with a sword. That's the same James that we've just read about in chapter 1. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So there's the context. Verse 6 to 11, Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, whose name was also Simon. So we've already met Simon. Here we've, we've met James, we've met Simon. Simon Peter is now in prison. He's been arrested by King Herod. And then God miraculously rescues Peter from prison in verse 6 to 11. Then verse 12, Peter, having escaped prison, finds a place of refuge. Let me read from verse 12. When he realized this, when he realized that God had rescued him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. 
So the context here, it's Jerusalem where King Herod has his throne. King Herod is a brutal, brutal dictator. He kills his opposition. He's just killed James. He threw Peter into prison. God rescues Peter. And uh, Peter, Peter escapes. He finds this home. He knows where the home is because it's a large home where the church was meeting. The home was owned by a lady called Mary. And we are told uh, that she's the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Then notice verse 24. Despite the intense persecution and suffering of the early church, we read in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And then verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So this team of Barnabas and Saul, Saul is the other name for Paul, uh, they, they've been in Jerusalem, they now return to Antioch, and uh, they take John Mark with them. They're meeting with the church in Antioch, chapter 3, verse 2, and while they're meeting, while they're worshiping, notice the Holy Spirit says, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that's John Mark, to assist them. So what we have here is the first missionary journey of the Christian church, the first ever missionary journey of the Christian church. They're two senior leaders, Barnabas and Saul. Saul is also Paul, and they have an apprentice with them, John, also called Mark. In fact, we'll find out later, he's the cousin of Barnabas. Verse 13, you're still with me? Verse 13, so important that you stay with me. Verse 13, uh, a major, major problem arises, and we don't realize at first that it's a major problem, but it's a major problem, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So, right at the beginning of this epic journey, this massive first missionary journey, John Mark, who's part of the team, a critical part of the team, abandoned ship. He throws in the towel. He breaks his promises, his commitment. And we know it's serious, really serious, because of what happens next. Go to chapter 15, verse 36. Paul and Barnabas complete their first missionary journey without John Mark. They go back to Antioch. They spend some time there. After spending time at Antioch, they set off on their second missionary journey. And then we read in chapter 15, have you got it there? Chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's go back to the towns, villages, churches we, we planted in the first missionary journey. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. So here we have the original dream team. We have uh, Paul and Barnabas, and um, they've split 
They've broken up. Disaster. And the reason is because Barnabas, the uncle of John Mark, said, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no ways. He dropped the ball. He's a loser. He's a failure. He messed up last time. We're not taking John Mark. So they separate. Later on in the letters, we discover that obviously John Mark had had a major spiritual reversal. God had worked in his life. And not only had he been drawn back into the early church, but God was using him as a leader, and he'd been reconciled with Paul. So we read, let me just read you two two references. They kind of uh, hints of this reconciliation. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And then 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, Paul writes from prison in Rome to Timothy and he says, Get Mark and bring him with, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now here's the punchline. It's this same Mark, John Mark, the deserter, the breaker of promises, the failure, whom God uses to write one of the four Gospels. Isn't that extraordinary? There are only four Gospels, been read by billions and billions of people for 2,000 years. And God uses a failure, a loser, to write one of them. He could have used anybody else, but he used John Mark. I don't know about you, but I find that enormously, enormously encouraging. It means there's hope for people like you and me. Which one of us hasn't failed God in some major way? Which one of us? blown it, messed up big time, every single one of us. And we think God can never use me again. We think I'm a loser. I'm soiled goods. I'm a third-rate has-been. And God says, no, I delight in renovating used goods. I delight in using failures like, like Paul, like Peter, like Thomas, like John Mark, like you and me. You know how we often say, let's not waste a crisis. I think God says, let's not waste a failure. So next time you're in a deep hole, remember John Mark. All right, let's dig in. First principle, the announcement. Let's pick it up, verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. Let me read. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's the start of the formal ministry of Jesus. The arrest of John was the signal for Jesus to commence his public ministry. He's 30 years old. He's probably spent 15, 16 years working with his father as a carpenter, as a builder. And here he starts his public ministry. Let me just say, right at the start of our series here in Mark's Gospel, you need to know that John Mark was a brilliant, brilliant author. He doesn't waste a sentence. He doesn't waste a word. So in one verse, verse 14, he intentionally connects the arrest of John with the arrival of Christ's public ministry. 
And he does that to alert us, the readers, to the fact that gospel preaching, gospel sharing, gospel living is not for the faint-hearted. It's going to be tough. There will be opposition. There will be hardship. So John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, both in his message and in his martyrdom. So John's head was separated from his body and placed on a tea tray. Jesus' head and body was placed on a tree where he was crucified with criminals. So what Mark is alerting us to is that when you become a disciple of Jesus, when you share the gospel, when you defend some biblical truth, don't be surprised when family or friends oppose you, when they ridicule you, when they ostracize you. John Mark says, don't be shocked. It's part of the territory. Didn't I tell you that in chapter 1, verse 14? Notice again, verse 14. Remember from last week, the word gospel doesn't mean a book. It's not a religious word. It's a secular word. It's a Greek word. It's the word evangelion, which means good news. It was used within the Greco-Roman world. It was the announcement of good, good news. Again from last week, dated 9 BC, the Prean calendar inscription, which said the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. A gospel was the announcement of historic news. And in this case, the birth date of Emperor Augustus. So it's not general news. It's not daily news. It's life-changing news. It's dramatic news. When Jesus, verse 14, proclaims the gospel of God and says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is not teaching the general truth that God is the king over history. No, he's saying the moment we've all been waiting for since the fall, since sin entered this world, that precise moment has arrived. For all eternity, human history will now be divided between what happened before this moment and what happened after this moment, which is precisely why we have B.C. and A.D., because of this moment, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Let me give you another example of the usage of this word gospel or good news. In 492 B.C., there was the first invasion of Greece by King Darius of Persia. It ended in 490 B.C., when the Greeks defeated the Persians at Marathon. That's the word we use. Google it. It's fascinating the history behind that word marathon. That's where the Greeks defeated the Persians. And immediately what they did was they sent out heralds called evangelists, same word, who proclaimed the good news, the evangelion, to all the Greek cities. I quote, we have fought for you, we have won, and now you're no longer slaves. You're free, end of quote. So in ancient times, the word evangelion meant massive news, dramatic news, historic news, news that changes everything. Now when Jesus comes, he not only proclaims the gospel, he is the gospel. And it's massive, it's dramatic, it's historic. When Jesus arrives, everything changes. The cosmos, the universe, planet Earth, human history, the human calendar When he arrives and invades your life, he turns everything upside down or right way up. Sorry to spoil your Sunday morning, but tomorrow's Monday. 
And uh, probably this time tomorrow, you'll be in a meeting, perhaps a department meeting or a management meeting. And uh, in most of those meetings, they'll bring out an agenda. Now, you know what agendas are. Number one, welcome. Number two, uh, minutes of the previous meeting. Number three, matters arising from the previous meeting. Number four, and so on. When Jesus invades your life, it's not as if God now suddenly appears on your, uh, your agenda. Hallelujah, God's on my side. He's on my agenda. No, no, no. It's not as if God is number one on the agenda. No. Jesus says, I'm king. And this is what I'll do with your agenda. I'm writing the agenda. That's what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ arrives. Notice again verse 15. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the question is, how do we know that the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, the answer is because the king has arrived. Not just a king, but the king. It's absolutely massive if you understand the big picture. Remember, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that we were created to live in a perfect world, perfect environment, perfect peace, perfect relationships, because God was the king. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, our foreparents, our representatives, rejected God as king. They rejected his rule. They rejected his authority and made themselves king. So what happened in Genesis chapter 3? was a rebellion. It was an insurrection against God. It was a grab for autonomy, for independence. We smashed God off his throne and we placed ourselves on the throne and said, I am the king of the castle and God is the dirty rascal. It was a unilateral declaration of independence, UDI. It's all about me because I'm worth it. That's the way of self-centeredness which is actually the heart of sin, self. And self-centeredness is toxic. It is lethal, literally. You've made yourself the center of everything. But sadly, the center won't hold. Trust me. You've made yourself king. But sadly, the king is flawed. The king is seriously dysfunctional. When we decide to make ourselves the center, when we decide to make ourselves king, everything falls apart, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, everything. That's why our world is like it is. No surprise. Self-centeredness destroys all relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. Because if I think that I'm king and you think you're king, well, then who is the real king? Well, all we can do is have a punch-up. And that's why we live in the world we do. Family breakdowns, divorce, abuse, class struggles, wars, terrorism, relationships constantly exploding. Because who's king? It's the darkness of self-centeredness. It's the darkness of self-absorption. It's the delusion, the delusion of actually thinking you're king. It goes something like this in your head. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How many likes did I get? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Do people know who I am? Why aren't they treating me like a king? 
Why did no one ask me my opinion? Why wasn't I mentioned? Now, my dear friends, we all know from experience, because we've all been there, perhaps you there right now, we all know from experience it ends in anger. And anger is because people aren't treating me like king. That's why we're angry. Perhaps that's why you're always angry. You're angry when you go to bed. You're angry when you wake up. Now, I know there are many causes to anger. But perhaps this is the reason you are so angry. Perhaps you think that you need a good psychologist. Now, I'm not knocking psychologists, but you probably don't need a good psychologist. You need good theology. Let me tell you, there is nothing more miserable than being self-centered, than trying to be king. You may have all the money in the world. You may have all the power in the world. You may have all the status in the world. You may have all the accolades in the world. But there is one thing you don't have, and that is joy. Because self-centeredness and joy are mutually exclusive. They are opposites. It's like oil and water. There's a line in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The hands of the king are healing hands. And thus shall the rightful king be known. You know how a child blossoms under the authority of a wise and good parent. You know how a, how a soccer team flourishes when you have, have a skillful coach. We've all seen that. So when you come under the healing royal hands of King Jesus, things will start to heal. Not completely, but you'll find healing under the hands of the king. Perhaps you'll say like Jewel at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember, Jewel was the unicorn. And he said, I've come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. Under the hands, the royal hands of a healing king. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. But notice there's a catch. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it's not enough just to know these things or understand these things. No, you need to respond. You need to take a step. You need to make a decision. To believe means to trust in something. To repent means to turn from something, to turn around. So if the real king has arrived, the real king, I need to realize I'm not the king. (laughs) I need to turn around. I need to repent. I need to reverse my own enthronement because it's not getting me anywhere. And submit to King Jesus, the only king. If you've never done that, perhaps today would be a good day. Principle number one, the announcement. Principle number two, the authority. Now, there's no mistaking the authority of Jesus in this portion. Let me read from verse 16. Excuse me. 
Chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So the Simon there is Simon Peter, the apostle Peter. So, so Simon is actually telling Mark, this is what happened. We were at the, at the Sea of Galilee, and uh, so uh, Mark is writing down what, uh, what Simon Peter is telling him. Uh, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee. That's the James we met in Acts chapter 12, who uh, Herod uh, assassinated. And uh, James, the son of Zebedee and Johnny's brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into, into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, just to give you some geographic context, remember chapter 1 from verse 1 to 13, uh, Jesus is located in the south of Israel, south of Palestine, in Judea, in Jerusalem. From verse 14 till the end of chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are located up north in Israel, up in Galilee, up at the Sea of Sea of Galilee. And Jesus based himself at Capernaum, which was a port city or a port town on the Sea of Galilee. Let me give you a little bit of background. The Sea of Galilee was a massive lake, 21 kilometers long, 13 kilometers wide. It had a huge fishing industry. To give you some idea, there were 16 major ports um, on the Sea of Galilee, apart from other little, uh, little towns and villages on the shores. Uh, Josephus tells us in 68 AD that there was a war in Galilee, and they brought together 238 large fishing vessel, vessels on the Sea of Galilee in the war. That's apart from little boats and canoes. Josephus, uh, Josephus um, talks about the Sea of, sea of Galilee, of its, of its sweet water, of its many species of fish. There was massive agriculture and farming, which included walnuts and pomegranates and melons and figs and grapes and olives. Makes your mouth water. Remember, the staple food of the Greco-Roman world was not meat, it was fish. And fish from Galilee was sought after. So it was found, it was sought after in Alexandria, in Egypt, in Antioch, in Syria, much like uh, we seek after prawns from Maputo. So when Jesus calls these two pairs of brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John, we need to understand who they are. James Edwards, in his brilliant commentary, says, I quote, <clears throat> he says that fishermen in Galilee competed in the large Mediterranean market testifies to their skill, prosperity, and ingenuity. Very probably they spoke Greek, which was the international language of business and culture. The fishermen Jesus called were scarcely uneducated day laborers. In order to survive in their market league, they needed to be shrewd and successful businessmen. So what you have here is Simon and Andrew PTY Limited. You have James and John PTY Limited, just like we have. They were the original I and J PTY Limited. Notice verse 17. Jesus says to them, 
follow me. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He does not say, like the rabbi said, follow the Torah. He does not say, come to the temple. No, follow me. My dear friends, don't follow the church. Don't follow some so-called man of God or prophet of God or apostle X, Y, Z. Don't follow some formula or ten life-changing principles. No, follow Jesus, the person, the person of Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. Now, what we have here is actually quite strange, strange and unique because the normal practice was that students would choose rabbis. Rabbis didn't choose students. So a student would go to a rabbi and say, I want to study under you, much like we say, I want to study at Witz or UJ or Takis. But unlike the rabbis, Jesus chooses them. So John Mark is showing us that Jesus had a very different kind of authority to that of the rabbis. He calls them and immediately they come. No arguments, no delay, no debate. By the way, nothing has changed. You can't have a relationship with Christ. You can't be a disciple of Christ unless Christ calls you. And you'll know that he's calling you because you want him. Because you can't get rid of this longing that almost haunts you to know Jesus. The big idea in this section that I've just read is the extraordinary authority of Jesus. So it's obvious with these four tough businessmen, people who work on boats, are not sentimental, touchy-feely type of people. Just go down to the Durban Harbor to see that. And yet Jesus speaks a word, and they immediately obey. Their lives are immediately revolutionized. You see it also there in verse 22. Jesus has entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he started teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 27, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Notice there verse 27, the people are almost more amazed at his teaching than at his casting out demons. Now, I think that John Mark must think we are thick. Uh, Well, perhaps some of us are. But he repeats over and over and over again the enormous power, the enormous authority of Jesus and his words. So notice chapter 1, verse 17. Notice here in your Bible. Jesus speaks to these tough businessmen and he says, follow me, and they instantly obey just a word. Chapter 1, verse 25, notice there, he speaks to the evil spirit, come out, and the evil spirit obeys instantly, just a word. Chapter 141, the leper asks Jesus to heal him. Jesus says, be clean, and instantly he is healed, just a word. Chapter 2, verse 11, have a look there, chapter 2, verse 11, a paralyzed man is healed with just a word. Chapter 4, verse 39, Jesus speaks a word, and the wind and the waves obey him. Extraordinary. And so it carries on throughout Mark's gospel. Now, a good question is, where else in the Bible is just a word spoken and things happen? Well, of course, Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just a word. 
Genesis 1 verse 9, and God said, let the waters be gathered, and it was so. Just a word. Genesis 1 verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the heavens, and it was so. Just a word. So what is John Mark teaching us? Well, in Genesis 1, God spoke and things happened. In Mark 1, Jesus spoke and things happened. Jesus acts like God. Jesus is God, God in the flesh. Just as God created by means of his word, so Jesus comes to recreate by means of his word. That's precisely why at the center of Christ Church Midrand are not signs and wonders, is not health and wealth, is not personalities and celebrities, is not smells and bells or gimmicks. No, it's the word of God. It's the word of Jesus. It's the Bible, which is God's word written. That's why at almost every gathering, when we gather, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, midweek, life groups, kids, teens, students, Bible tots, what do we do? Our priority is not listening to each other. No, our priority is to listen to God. We read his word, God's word written. You see, when the word of God is taught, the spirit of God takes the word of God. And he changes hearts, he changes lives, he changes families, he changes communities. I've seen that happen for 27 years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Not changed by me, but changed by the word of God and the spirit of God. So let's not fix what isn't broken. We're going to keep doing that until Jesus returns. Which means that the key to 2021, with all its uncertainties with all its unknowns, is not found in some new form of meditation or spirituality. It's not the latest book on self-realization or success. No, it's found in the person of Christ and his word. You can never separate the two, Christ and his word. They're two sides of a coin. Lastly, let's have a look. We've looked at the announcement, the authority. Let's lastly look at the conflict. Let me read from verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now remember the context here, verse 21, 22, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, everyone is listening, everyone is amazed, and suddenly there's this interruption. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I can't remember us ever having that kind of interruption here at Christchurch Midrand at one of our services. Sometimes we've had, occasionally we've had someone who's fainted, uh, quite often we've had someone who's fallen into a deep sleep, uh, but we've we've never had this kind of interruption. Uh, it's quite it's quite startling here, verse twenty three and twenty four. And notice the evil spirit says two things. Well, at least two things. Verse twenty four. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You see, here's the start of the public ministry of Jesus. Here's the Son of God with the Word of God on his lips, and the powers of hell realize with a shock. Here's an invasion. 
They realize with a shock our days are numbered. They realize with a shock Jesus has invaded our world. The second thing, verse 24, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's quite striking that the demons understood the identity and mission of Jesus before humans did. Verse 24, have you come to destroy us? There's a shrewd statement because that's precisely why Jesus came. It's much the same in chapter 3, verse 11. Just quickly turn over to chapter 3, verse 11, where also an evil spirit, and whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. See, they know exactly who Jesus is. Chapter 5, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, the evil spirit said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It's quite interesting that that in the Gospels, it takes the human beings quite a long time to find out who Jesus is and why he came. A lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion before the penny drops. But it seems that if Satan and his demonic forces have no confusion about who Jesus is or why he came, none at all. The theology of hell is orthodox. They correctly identified Jesus, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. All terms describing the divine nature of Christ. The spiritual realm, the dynamic, demonic world know exactly who Jesus is. Our world doesn't, but they do. Back to chapter 1, verse 25. Jesus responds, and of course Satan and his cohorts don't stand a chance. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. My dear friends, the Bible is crystal clear. There's a real devil called Satan. There are real evil spirits. They have real power. Evil spirits can bring illness and tragedy and death. They can bring about the most terrible evil and sin and injustice in our world. In fact, that's why our world is like it is. They have real power, but remember, it's limited power. Christ is vastly superior. Just one word from Jesus, and the evil spirits collapse. Let me say to you that if you belong to Jesus, if you are in Christ, and that is the key phrase, you never ever have to fear Satan or evil spirits or curses or the occult, or anything of that nature. Now listen very carefully because there's enormous misunderstanding amongst many Christians. You are protected. You are protected from evil spirits and curses and demonic powers, not because you've prayed a certain prayer, not because you've said certain words, not because you have claimed certain promises. It's not because the pastor has blessed your house. It's not because you have a cross or a Bible verse or holy water in your house. It's not because you walk around your house or your property praying. My dear friends, that is nonsense. It's mumbo-jumbo. It's superstition. It's almost pagan. No, you are protected from the evil powers of this dark world simply because you belong to Christ who conquered sin and Satan on the cross, simply because you've been adopted into his family, simply because you've been washed by his blood, simply because you're a child of God through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Well, I need to close. If you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, you never, 
ever need to fear Satan or his evil spirits because we are protected by Christ. We cannot protect ourselves. They are stronger than us. The only protection we have is Christ. But my dear friend, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you are not in Christ, you have everything to fear. Because you have no defense against Satan. If you are involved in some way in witchcraft, in the occult, in demonic activity, let me tell you, you have much to fear. Evil is far worse than you thought. And unless you turn to Christ, evil may get a grip on you that will never be broken. We only have one defense, and that is to be in Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. Flee to him. Cling to him. Entrust yourself to him. And you'll be safe. And you'll be free. And you'll have joy. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will forgive us, help us to repent where we have thought that we are king. Help us to dethrone self and enthrone Christ, who is king. Forgive us, Lord, when we have not trusted you for the present or the future and we have forgotten that you are in control because you're king. Forgive us, Father, when we have been drawn into religious things which have no power. Forgive us when we've thought that Religion could rescue us or save us or help us or protect us and not Christ. So, Father, will you help us to repent and to believe, to repent from our own enthronement and to submit to Christ, the only king, the great king, the victorious king, Help us, Lord, to to sense that cleansing, that washing, that forgiveness, that freedom, that joy when we submit to Jesus as King. Oh, Lord, will you by your Holy Spirit work in us and through us and help us to share this great news with those around us. Lord, go with us into this week. Lord, help us. Things are strange and different and unpleasant. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to know that you are king. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.
Well, it's been great to have you with us here this morning. Thank you so much for staying and listening. Next week, God willing, we'll be back in chapter 1 from verse 29 to the end of the chapter. I hope you do read that, and I hope you have read through Mark's gospel this past week. If you haven't, do read through Mark's gospel in one sitting so you can get this wonderful bird's-eye view of this man God called Jesus. God bless you, and have a good week.